I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, we're going to be talking a lot about sexual violence in this series. There's also some language. If either of those things are upsetting for you, please take care while you're listening. Hi, Rose. Hi, Ronan. Thank you for doing this today. I feel like you're the person more than anyone else that I wanted to hear from today just because of how long you've been in this, pushing for some kind of accountability. Yeah, it's been an odyssey for both of us. Yeah, and here we are sitting here today. What a day. This is the Catch and Kill podcast. I'm Ronan Farrow. On Monday, Harvey Weinstein was found guilty of sex crimes and taken into police custody in New York, while he awaits a sentence that could total 29 years. A jury convicted him of rape in the third degree against Jessica Mann, a former aspiring actress, and of a criminal sex act in the first degree against Miriam Halle, a former Project Runway production assistant who claimed he forced oral sex on her. We thought this podcast ended with episode nine, but so many of you asked for our take on the verdict that here we are again with a special bonus episode. No frills this time, just a straight interview with one very important voice. For many of the more than 90 women who have publicly accused Harvey Weinstein of sexual harassment or assault, the verdict comes after years of frustration at the inaction of the media and the criminal justice system. Few people know that frustration better than the actress Rose McGowan, who alleges that Weinstein assaulted her in 1997 during the Sundance Film Festival. In 2016, she tweeted that she'd been raped by an unnamed studio head. And then, several months later, became the first woman to go on camera, as I reported on Weinstein. A few hours after the jury announced its verdict, Rose was ready to debrief on the trial and look back at her story. So we sat down at Pineapple Street Studios in New York. First of all, I often begin our conversations this way. How are you, Rose? (laughs) And I always, I think, answer, well, it's another day in the twilight zone. The other day, someone asked me, they're like, what do you hope for? I looked at them and I said, I don't. I don't hope. It's not that I'm not optimistic. I just, it's not part of my lexicon, hope. What's the point? What's a goal? Survival. That's my goal. But today, I have this tiny feeling of like this little chrysalis opening in my heart and my chest right now. That's like, I think it feels like that girl that turned to the camera and said, I think my life is finally getting easier and then walked in to be, you know, raped by Weinstein at 10 in the morning. I've had to have this hardness uh, that's not native to me. But today, by this verdict um, and what's happened, I feel like the soft girl that I was a little bit right before I walked into that room. I haven't, I haven't exhaled in so long. And I know that every 
woman who's been affected by him and everybody who's ever been affected by this period had this kind of collected breath held. What were you doing when the verdict came across? I, last night, stayed up till 5 in the morning staring at my computer because I knew, and I had been for a week, you know, I was tasked with, you have to write something if he's found not guilty. You have to write something if he's found guilty. And it just... It just spun my brain out. I couldn't. I actually started crying and fell asleep at five in the morning. I was like, forget it. And I slept through it. I woke up at 11 and checked my phone. I was like, there were a ton of messages and I was braced myself. And then I realized, much like through the entire trial and the jury deliberations, very few people reached out to me at all. So just by sheer volume, something good happened because that's when they come out. So you looked at your phone this morning braced for the worst, and then when you saw what had happened, what went through your mind? Honestly, joy. And then I thought, I wonder if he's going to hire a hitman to kill me. That was my other thought. And then I thought, should I have coffee this morning? (sighs) These are my casual thoughts. I really thought we were going to be talking about him getting off. And it's not because... You know, I was thinking like, oh, the jury or this or that. It was just uh, the people behind it, the people behind the charges, you know, the DA that... Dropped the effort to charge him before. Dropped the effort to charge him before. Uh, Cuomo, who dropped the investigation into Cyrus Vance quietly and without much notice. I wonder if he'll pick that back up. You know, didn't the head of the DA sex crime unit just step down like last week, I think? They really did Ombra such a disservice and... The culture is such a disservice when they shut that down. Oh, yeah. They have rape on their hands. They have pain on their hands. They, not that they cared, but they also took huge donations. They're all connected through the Democratic Party. Uh, Governor Cuomo, I find it really troublesome, but he dropped the investigation to Cy Vance, the DA, and the sex crimes unit. I hope now is a good time. I'm grateful for the prosecutor for uh, doing what she did. Jonah Luzzi. Jonah Luzzi. But I do believe that uh, Vance, there's some stuff that needs to be uncovered there. You know better than most people how immovable the status quo can seem sometimes. Right. So I can imagine that this was not necessarily the outcome you were expecting. No, I was honestly shocked. And I'm still quite shocked. Uh, Pleasantly, of course, because the other alternative is misery. But I've been like just, I can always kind of tell my state of mind by how many clothes I throw on the floor. How many clothes have you thrown on the floor today? I haven't thrown any on the floor today, but the past week there are a lot of clothes on my floor. I was really dreading that onslaught of the narrative with the media of the whole, like, yay, Me Too has been stopped kind of thing. Conflating Me Too, conflating the Harvey Weinstein thing, conflating the two, which I think they're quite, you know, Harvey was like the flaming spear tip that Cultural Reset wrote in on. But it is much bigger than Harvey Weinstein. And these systems are much bigger. Systems are much bigger. The fact is, and this is fucked up. Am I allowed to curse? You are. Oh, cool. Let's Let's fuck it up, Rose. Fuck it up, fuck it up. Um, Only 2% of rapes get convictions. The fact that there was someone connected to me by my rapist because we had the same rapist who was testifying that was already a win that someone who had been hurt by a rapist a powerful man got to sit across from him and point at him and say that man raped me that was already a huge victory so even if he won I mean I was found not guilty I was thinking that's a victory 
because that's farther than 98% of people get. Yeah. And, and those and, are only the ones reported. And particularly extraordinary to see women sitting across from and accusing a man who was so insulated from accountability for so long. It's mind-boggling, the kind of pathos and the the level of dedication to rape that that man had. I mean, <sighs> wow. That's like, wow, like, you're really taking the hobby, like, real seriously there. Like, it was almost like the movies were the hobby, and this was like, you know, it was, it was like a rape factory. It feels to me like the Harvey Weinstein story is in so many ways a story about society's willingness to look the other way en masse. And you've often used the term in our conversations, brainwashing, mass delusion, a cult of thinking that whitewashed this and swept it under the rug. You have known that kind of groupthink and brainwashing from a very early age. Yeah, I'm kind of an expert on that kind of thinking. You know, I I didn't study it. I, I, I was it. Your early childhood was in Italy and actually in a cult, a literal cult. What was that group and what was that upbringing like? The group was called Children of God, and it was um, an idealistic group of weirdos, uh, <laughs> that wanted to see what would happen if they raised their children with utopian ideals. But like most groups uh, that start with good intentions, um, especially with powerful male leaders, it goes sour, it goes awry. You had really early experiences with abuse and Mm -hmm. violence. You tell the story in the book of being four years old and a guy coming up and cutting you. Yeah, I had a deep and intimate knowledge of, you know, both anywhere from like domestic violence to mental violence and not just in the cult but later in America I had to raise myself living on my own since 15 um and I would just imagine what the best version of me would be what would the most awesome version of me do and I'm going to imitate that when you came to the United States you you had experience after experience of one kind of abuse or another there was your father, who was often abusive, your mother's partners, who often mistreated you. You once told me about a, a statutory rape by a prominent director. It was only, it was like three months after the articles came out in 2017 that I started reviewing a relationship, quote unquote, that I'd had with a very powerful, well, not at the time powerful at all, became powerful. In fact, won Oscars for Harvey. And it was really cool and very handsome and probably like 32 or 33. And how old were you? 15. Not legal. It was statutory rape. Correct. But also, looking back, I was groomed. I auditioned for him. Then he took me back to his apartment in Silver Lake, played me a soft porn movie he directed for Showtime under a different name, and then I slept with him. And then he left me on the street corner next to Cafe Tropical on Sunset. But I'd always framed it when I would see him around because I'd always just thought he was really handsome and I liked him. And I would say to him, I was like, isn't it funny? I can't believe you slept with me when I was 15. And I thought that was funny. And I, I assume, looking back, you no longer find that funny. No, when in fact I started to break it down and figured it out, 
I started crying because I felt really bad for that girl that got left on that street corner. And yeah. I still talk about it like that. I still like say that girl or that young girl or like it's a very divorced feeling for me. I think that's just coping mechanisms. But, you know, and I don't know. I haven't decided what to do about that information. Is or that someone have... you want to name or? I'll go reflect on it more and get back to you. So having lived through those years in the cult and then those experiences of abuse, how does that all affect your thinking about the world? What do you take away from that? I mean, there's many levels of cult. You know, you could take it to Trump's America, where the news does a great job here in America of not even showing the weather in Africa. Nothing exists outside of America. It just does not. That's a cult. Hollywood is a deep cult. And it's interesting that there's like something in the 70 percentile of uh, 70 percent. If if you've been in one cult, you have a huge chance of falling into another one. And I was always like, oh, how sad for those people. And then I was like, oh, my God, I was that person. So I know the dude who directed Transformers, I walked into his casting office once and there were all these women in there standing there and they had bikinis on and just placards around their neck with numbers, according to how hot they were, as it turned out. This is Michael Bay. Yeah, this is Michael Bay. It's his idea of how he rates women, how he thinks about women. Or, so it's kind of like how people are treated behind the scenes there, or how they're treated on screen is how we're treated in the world. And, and the cycle goes on. Well, and you, you watch those movies and many others like them. And Completely women is. are shot in a certain way. They are relegated to certain kinds of roles in the plot. Yeah, and it's just about the drip, drip, drip of poison going into your mind when you're like just chilling out at home. And every time you open your mouth, they think you're insane. And it's just like, but they've done that to women for centuries. And it's, uh, you know, I think today's verdict was really a referendum on that. I hope so. I think it's a rejection in some ways of Donna Rotunno. Donna Rotunno, Harvey Weinstein's lawyer, who said, I've never put myself in the position to be sexually assaulted and who has made all these statements sort of... uh, Mm -hmm almost inflected with the language of sort of the alt-right, men's rights type Oh, it is that. It's, it's, all, it's the dog whistle. It's the same thing as like an alt-right person does about race or about Jews. That's what she's just doing about women. You know, and uh, how's that working out for you today, bitch? <laughs> you spend all this time in the cult and then as a runaway and then even in your early experiences of Hollywood sexism, kind of hardening yourself, developing defense mechanisms. And then you get to Sundance 97 and you're there with multiple well-received movies and it's kind of the last setting where you'd think you'd need those defenses up. I was the belle of Sundance that year. I had four movies there. But it's also the setting where you encounter Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. He was sitting behind me the night before, and um, it was the first time I'd seen him in person. I thought he was terrifying looking. And he sat behind me, and I remember it was in a movie called, ironically, Going All the Way. And it was a 50s period piece, and I had a topless scene. that I remember filming and crying after doing it. I hated it. I hated it. And then I remember the scene happening, and like this release of breath behind me, uh, like this kind of thing like that. And then my then manager turning and looking and nodding. 
Um, you replay everything, you know, because everything's like a movie and you film it for posterity while it's going on, trust, and then you replay it from many different angles. The morning after the screening, you were supposed to have a business meeting with him. You know, the first thing, it was supposed to be a breakfast meeting in the dining room at the restaurant. And the maitre d' said, oh, he just has a couple more calls in his office. His assistants will let you in. And so I walk, I'm like, okay, good morning, cheery. This is 10 a.m. And you've told me before that it actually was a business meeting, that you guys were talking about movies up until you were getting ready to leave. I was done with the meeting, and I was just like, oh, I was thinking the thought, like something like I should put my lipstick back on because the cameras will be rolling when I come down. And then I felt like, you know, this hand inside of my collar pulling me into this other room, which is what happened. Also, Donna Rotano, I know you didn't put yourself in situations, but Donna, have you been to a 10 a.m. breakfast meeting in a dining room? I bet you have at a hotel. Uh-huh. Yeah. So guess what? You put yourself in that position, just like I did. How did that change your life? You hear a lot about rape victims feeling guilt and shame. I never felt guilt or shame because I know I didn't do it. It was so clear-cut. I was at a breakfast meeting, and and this happened. Uh, I was not on a date with this person. I was not, like, luckily I didn't have to unpack that part of it, too, you know? But it did. It altered my life in such a monstrous way um, because also at this point I was already well-known, and I had done a movie. I was making a billion dollars for his company. So I was quite well-known, and then all of a sudden you get raped and blacklisted. So then what do you do? What job do you go get? You're trapped. You're stuck. You know? And that day was a terrible fucking day. Rape kills, sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. And you really have to make the point and choice, which I had to do after being raped, of how do you give birth to the person that was you that's now dead inside of you? How do we get this out? Because either that or it's going to kill you from the inside. You'll either kill yourself slowly, drugs, alcohol, bad behavior, risky behavior or uh, cutting, whatever it is, um, anorexia, bulimia, all that kind of stuff, um, overeating, buying things, you know, all the compulsive behaviors, and it, and it kills. I just feel like if just one person, one person could have saved my life, and I wouldn't have had to die that day. It sounds like you're referring to the many, many people who were involved in setting that meeting, watching yes. you go into that meeting, seeing you come out of that meeting. This was not in a bubble. This was not a random attack. I was his morning appointment, most likely. He had an afternoon one, too. Or evening. Who knows? I'll tell you, from the first interview we had, one of the most chilling things, as brutal as the description of physical violence was, was the system you described. You saying that it had felt from the beginning like a well-oiled machine that there were people who wouldn't meet your eye in your view because they knew this was part of a pattern that's part of the foundation of what made me convinced this was a story worth fighting for because it was bigger than any one person it was about the systems that protect criminals yes and it it is and it very much is and the system (laughs) is rigged and it's rigged against us, the public. Well, and you talked about running into Ben Affleck right after this yeah, incident. Right after. I went straight from the hotel. When I made it 
somehow out of there, I'm taken to a photo shoot, like a photo call with like, you know, 20, 30 photographers and me and Ben Affleck. I don't remember who else was there. I looked right at him. I was crying and my, I was like, I just came from Harvey's. And he's like, God damn it, I told him to stop doing that. It's not like I'm raging at Ben Affleck. I never said to him I was just raped. It's just uh, more to illustrate the point of it's just this continual thing of everybody knowing and everybody being part of it unwittingly or proactively. There were like unwritten laws that you just don't say anything. You don't do anything. It was more just that whole machine that just immediately went to work. And you got to see that machine in action, right? Starting almost immediately. After I got home from Sundance, um, I was sitting in the dark in my apartment at night, just against the wall, like shaking. And um, I threw up on myself because my answering machine went. And uh, back in the day, we had this. And uh, Gwyneth's my special friend. Drew's my special friend. You're my new special friend. And he did that a lot. He used Gwyneth. I, I don't know if he used Drew to others, but that's what he did to me. And I, like, then, Is you it know, like Drew Barrymore? Or what? Yeah. You told people from the beginning, and I talked to those people, and they remembered you talking about it. But you described talking to people and being told very early on, I believe by an attorney you consulted, oh, no one will believe you because you're an actress and you've done a sex scene. She's like, you're an actress, you've done a sex scene, you're done. And the when I told them, one of the heads of the, the management company, you know, uh, he's like, God damn it. I just had an LA Times expose about him killed. He owes it to me not to do this. But I'm like looking at this guy going, what? Like, you could have stopped this? Then I turn on the TV and I see Gwyneth giving him humanitarian awards and I'm like, what the fuck is going on in this world like what is happening like won't somebody tell the truth and you went through a long period after that of being in the state I think so many women with stories of sexual violence spent a long long time in which is either being quiet about it or not being believed when you did make noise about it that went on for years while I had to either do the thing where you're speaking up and not being believed or pushing it down, um, like I was just playing other people all the time. I, had a, I, then I got on a TV show because it was the only job I could get because TV and movies hadn't overlapped yet. And that's worth talking about because it's a hallmark of so many women's stories about Harvey Weinstein that they were riding high and then suddenly they were unemployable after yeah. these incidents. And I somehow got employed like by the skin of my teeth. But not in movies. But not in movies, no. Um, and then uh, on a show that brought a lot of joy to a lot of people, but isn't necessarily my taste. Right. But it was a way to survive. You know, with him specifically, he went after really talented people, like really special people. Like he, And he deprived, I think, the world of a lot of amazing art. He really, really did. Well, I, I saw no. a little bit of that, that evolution of where you were heading because we first met, strangely, in 2010 yeah, at that's a what I was start- lunch that's with Pentagon and State Department officials while I was know. a diplomat, as one does. As one does. <laughs> and they were like, oh, come to this lunch with Rose McGowan. You had just done a USO tour. Yeah, because I do love the USO tradition of uh, of supporting the troops down. It's like it can sound corny, but it's quite important. And then I wound up on Air Force Two. 
because I missed that flight to Afghanistan for the USO tour. So I wound up being with the head of like the Army, the Navy, the Marines, and the Air Force. Then the luncheon where I met you. I was like, I want to start like finding different halls of power for when it comes time to strike too. And in retrospect, I was meeting you at the beginning of that transformation where where I could sense even in that conversation, even in 2010, how fed up you were getting, how exhausted you had become with the kind of rank misogyny that just was under the surface of all of it in your view and how you wanted to find a way to blow it up. I was getting out of the cult. After the break, Rose McGowan goes much more public and stares down efforts to keep her story under wraps, from media executives willing to kill a story under pressure to hired spies. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest who celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. In 2016, six years after we had that weird first meeting, you started becoming much more public about your allegation. There was a viral hashtag, why women don't report, and you offered your own thoughts about that. Do you want to read what you tweeted? A female criminal attorney said, because I'd done a sex scene in a film, I would never win against the studio head, why women don't report, because my ex sold our movie to my rapist for distribution. Because it's been an open secret in Hollywood media, and they shame me while adulating my rapist. It is time for some goddamn honesty in this world. How premeditated were those tweets? Not. I always knew there was going to be something, and uh, what I do have is a good time instinct for timing. Like a good instinct for timing when to throw the Molotov cocktail in the world. I was in the bathtub. I was in the bathtub, and I was scrolling through my time, and it was kind of at night, I think, if I remember it just saw the women, why they didn't report, and the men that wrote on there too, why they didn't report, and it made me, I was like, these women are so brave. These people are brave. I'm going to be brave. It's time. Going back in your mind to that moment of being in the bathtub and deciding, I'm going to send these tweets, could you have imagined at that point that we'd be sitting here talking about Harvey Weinstein getting convicted? Hmm. What a good question. No. But I did think that there could be a massive cultural shift. That I knew. I still remember the first call we had at end of 2016 or beginning of 2017, where it was clear that we both had probably too much knowledge about the dark underbelly of how some of these systems work. And we're both grappling with how do we all confront that? And how do we communicate this with other people when we know, like it would set everybody's hair on fire, the stuff we know. Yeah. Then we sit down for that interview in February 2017. And 
it's a moment I'll never forget because you you weren't yet naming him. Later, you did name him on the record for me, which was very yes. significant. But you were very explicitly talking about what had happened that day. And with an almost Cassandra-like premonition uh, of equality to, to what you were saying, you were talking about a looming war over these issues. Yeah. I was right. You were right. And you were already at that point when you gave that interview seemingly so inured to being disbelieved, being dismissed. I remember you turning to the camera and saying, you know, make sure the lawyers don't just read this, they have to watch this. This was the NBC News lawyers at the time. Have the lawyers watch this. Yeah. Oh, they will be. <laughs> watch it, but not just read it. And, and uh, I hope they're brave too, because I tell you what, it's happened to their daughter, their mother, their sister, their aunt. Fact. Yeah, and then later you told me they didn't watch it. They only read it. Yeah. Those lawyers know who they are. Good job, fellas. Feel good? Well, and some of them were women that shut down that story on orders from above. Oh, that's above. true. Mm-hmm. Good job, ladies. <laughs> Jesus. Was it's it... like, it's, uh, yeah. And I knew NBC was going to fall before you did, I think. That they weren't going to run the story? Uh, yeah, no. What made you suspicious of NBC News? It's NBC. They have Matt Lauer. I had heard about Matt Lauer. In you some felt way. like they had their own issues to hide and wouldn't go for this. Well, you're asking for bravery on behalf of people that are doing and putting out news that is like generally fairly abhorrent and twisted and psychologically damaging to the people uh, that watch it by how twisted it is behind the scenes before it even gets on air. NBC is rape culture. CBS is rape culture. Miramax, Weinstein Company is rape culture. This is rape culture. And then they're putting out that thought for the world and they're behind the, they're the gatekeepers of thought. I find that deeply offensive when they don't think. Part of it is also no one thinking it's their responsibility to take an extra step or right. think more deeply. And, you know, in that group of people who made those decisions about that particular story, you know, you had uh, the president of NBC News, Noah Oppenheim, who was an aspiring screenwriter. And I saw had, that movie. <laughs> right. Wrote Jackie, had dinner with Harvey you know, at an event uh, in the midst of all of this reporting. That's insane. You know, received a bottle of Grey Goose after the story was killed with a warm note from Harvey and, you know, responded in a friendly way. And as it turns out, had written during college these, you know, very anti-woman sort of screeds for the Harvard Crimson, sort of men's rights and their quotes, yeah, and right. stuff. And then you had bosses of, you know, Andy Lack was the head of the news group who had his own history of women who later went on the record saying, you know, I was an associate producer. He slept with me. He retaliated against me. And their boss, the head of NBC Universal, Steve Burke, who just got didn't he just get? He just left. But at the time, but didn't those other two Oppenheimer and Lap just get re-upped? Yep, they're still there. And Steve Burke, who hasn't received any blowback from this, he'll fail upwards. So many people who reported to him have subsequent to the book coming out and the story coming out told me, you know, I was in a conversation with him during the month where they killed that story and threatened you if you ever revealed they had it, uh, where he was just very casual about saying, oh, Harvey's calling all the time. I'm having to deal with all these conversations with him. This is a shit show. And one of them who recounted asking, well, like, is it true? 
said he just looked at this person like they were crazy and said, what do you mean, is it true? Of course we can't run the thing. I'll never hear the end of it from Harvey. So it all does go back to kind of the systems that you're talking about. It's all the system. And my thing was like, which is why today just feels like an amazing cherry because I truly never thought the day would come when I didn't feel his power and his foot on the back of my neck. And today I feel a little bit lighter. You know, and Andy Lack and Noah Oppenheim, you are bad, bad humans. You're bad people. When you look in the mirror at night, I want you to know that you're bad and that you could be better and that you are the gatekeepers of people's thought, that you have a social responsibility to actually be smarter and less creepy on a baseline level. During that same summer in 2017, you were targeted by operatives working on behalf of a firm Harvey Weinstein hired called Black Cube. There was Seth Friedman, this freelance journalist who pretended to interview you for an article, and there was Stella Penn Pechenich, a literal secret agent who called herself Diana and posed as your friend while secretly recording you and sending that information to Weinstein. And stealing my book. 125 pages of it were stolen before its publication and delivered to him. My rapist saw my words before anybody else. That really bothered me terribly. And for what it's worth, the contract that I ultimately uncovered and published did explicitly direct them to obtain the manuscript. They say that didn't happen, but certainly he got the information and I was able to report that there was a meeting where he was debriefed on the contents. And he wasn't happy about it. No, he was not. How does one grapple with the idea that there are people with false identities insinuating themselves into the lives of uh, sources with accusations like this, of reporters? How do you trust again? What does that tell you about reality? Well, that's assuming I trusted before. It's hard. I've done movies where I've played people like the woman who was inserted into my life. And she was a former actress, apparently. So, you know, the journalists were more onto her. But with me, she was playing a corporate European woman who seemed quite nice. She reported back to her bosses at Black Cube at one point that you had told her she was the only person left that you could trust. Yeah. She must have felt good about that one. You told me when I was putting out that story, finally revealing that there was this black cube operation, that it was like living in a hall of funhouse mirrors. That it was like the movie Gaslight. It is. It's so strange. But it's not strange at the same time because it's so par for the course of my weird life. The fake journalist, Seth Friedman... All these people, they're just so many bad people. It's just like, wow. Look, people associated with this Black Cube operation would strenuously say, you know, we, we never were out to threaten her. We were just gathering information. And Seth Friedman has done a whole little press circuit saying, you know, I never did anything untoward. I just called and Rose and others spoke to me freely. That's not Uh, true. He was presented to me as somebody who had problems in the same arena I'd had problems in meaning that it was inferred that he was like a sex abuse victim and didn't know what to do about it. So that was under the auspices that I called him. And then The Guardian actually printed 
the interview the interview he did with me I know without acknowledging where it came from I found that really disgusting I I do not like the Guardian and Stella Pechenich the real identity of your friend Diana (laughs) Uh, has also now given interviews mm-hmm. uh, defending what she did and saying, you know, we didn't know he was such a monster at the time and that what she did to you wasn't really that bad. Um, I don't know. I think I was pretty explicit with her, so I guess that's her level of what she thinks is a monster. What do you say to those people? I hope you enjoyed the compensation in the short term because in the long term, I think your soul might be in for some uh, some troubled times ahead. I mean, they were doing a job. They were doing a job. They were doing a bad job and likely a legal job, um, but they were doing a job. You know, I'm sure they've done other very unsavory things too for their job. You know, and I'm just one of the targets. I don't specifically take it personally. I'm not like you hurt me so deeply. It was more just the level of the system wrapped around me, kind of. You know, and it feels like a little bit like I'm the red pin in the middle of the wall with all these strings coming mm-hmm. out of it, like all over the place. <laughs> and there's so many more that you could have put in your book or so many more that yes. I could have put in my book or like that, you know, there's so many more that we could talk about or so many more people I could actually sue. But you have to just kind of narrow that down too. And it's, But it is like the Noah Oppenheim and the Andy Lacks and the people like that. Like, do I think Stella Pachanek is worse than Andy Lack or Noah Oppenheim? Mm, no. I think they're probably on the same moral equivalent. People who looked the other way. People who don't just look the other way, they help. What was it like in the fall of 2017, finally seeing those stories break, first about the allegations and then eventually about Black Cube? That whole period was just like, I had to hit the ground running. I was exhausted. I was so tired. But I was like, I knew that people would want to just bury it and go back to the way things were, desperately. And I was like, cannot let that happen, cannot let that happen. You know, it takes a lot to break a glass ceiling. You have to punch it really hard, repeatedly. It's not just a one punch. After the break, prosecutors in New York reopen the case against Harvey Weinstein, and Rose McGowan shows up at the first day of Weinstein's trial. So after this long struggle to speak about this and the vindication of seeing it finally go public in 2017, what was it like to see law enforcement turn its attention back to this? In fact, have it get picked up again by the same New York team that had dropped the previous effort to charge him? Well, I mean, I thought that was just because they were left publicly with no other choice. And I mean, they had to because the heat that was put on by your piece, you know, with Ambra Guterres and like the reality of what it was. You appeared outside of the trial on day one. Tell me about that. That was very surreal. I didn't want to see him. Uh, Some of the other women stood on the side while he walked in. They wanted, uh, I think some of them said that they wanted him to look at them, and I knew he wouldn't. And I've also, I've just seen that face quite enough for the rest of my natural life, thank you. Why participate in that press conference? Why talk that day? Honestly? because I knew the other women would get more coverage if I was there. And also, I wanted to be inclusive and be just part of that and them, not just on my own. 
but it was also important just because, you know, his attorney, Donna Rotano, is trying to run the narrative. So you have to do anything you can to press back at the narrative. Have you followed the trial day in, day out? I didn't follow it day in, day out. No, I didn't. I was like, I because I knew, like, her script. You know, I knew what was going to be said. Um, I mean, it still you, filters in and you, you hear the horrible stuff, but I didn't. Thank God, Annabella, and thank God, uh, Miriam, and uh, Mimi, and... Um, Jessica. Jessica, and, you know, thank God. Because they, uh, it's hard as hell doing it from behind a keyboard every day. But to do it face-to-face, that's a whole nother ballgame. Have you spoken to any other survivors during the trial? Yeah, we've been on an email chain. What have those conversations been like? You know, I would summarize it by probably most of the women just being so used to, and I think this is not even like native to the Harvey Weinstein victims, just so used to being shit on by justice and, and having none. It sounds like a lot of this was bracing... For the worst. For the worst outcome that was so familiar by now. Yeah, I wasn't even like that upset about it. I was just like... I was stressed. I was expecting the worst and expecting to have to deal with just a bunch of stupid like articles like, yeah, status quo is back. Wow. But you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. You can't like go back on thought. You know, we can... I mean, we can like politically, obviously, and in various ways, but... It's kind of like a conscious awakening on a mass scale that will keep growing. It's like you you can't unthink. Once you start thinking, you tend to think more. Harvey Weinstein was convicted of two sex crimes, but not of the more serious predatory sexual assault charge that would have flowed from the jury buying into the idea that he had committed more than one sex crime in the first degree, that right. this was a pattern. Those results are complicated for a lot of people. Yeah. How do you feel about it? You know, those cases and the, the type of cases had never been won in a court of law in America, right? Um, the, the kind of ones where the relationship goes on afterwards, there's, there's not a history of that winning. So that's why I was kind of like, why were those specific ones brought? Um, it's it's extremely difficult. Well, it's interesting in this case, though, because one of the charges on which he was convicted was Jessica Mann's allegation, which was explicitly from the beginning and throughout her testimony, a case in which she acknowledged an ongoing Should, relationship. Right, that, it's so very significant in that it's respect. It's extremely significant. That a jury acknowledged, oh, you can have an act of sexual violence of some kind. I mean, hers was rape in the third degree is what they found him of, which is without physical compulsion, but it is a sex crime. And also have an ongoing relationship. Which is a very, um, you know, for the American uh, jury system, like it's pretty revolutionary in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, that women can be married and get raped. You know, you can be in a relationship and get raped by your partner. Same sex, anything, like any, you know, um, that is huge, actually, and I think it will be significant. It kind of makes me sad because I'm not. I think I'm so used to being given scraps that I'm just so happy with what we got, and that kind of makes me both happy and sad. Um, I don't really know how they can't see that there was like a predatory behavior because that also is what it is, but. Uh, I was expecting him to totally walk, I'll be honest with you. 
the good thing is that it becomes an ongoing conversation and the legal system needs to do more and get smarter when it comes to sexual assault cases for sure and how they prosecute them and how they treat the victims and what is tolerated and the kind of defense that Donna Rotono, his attorney, was running. You know, we've heard all those kind of things forever. She's a real throwback. She's a Donna. real throwback, Donna. <laughs> yes. The closing argument was basically like, oh, yeah, women have to take responsibilities for their own actions. They are. That's why they're here testifying. They're, this is their action. And they're taking responsibility and, and running their life the best they can in a horrible situation with the choices they're given. So they are. Not in the way you would think. But it is layered, you know, it's a, and I, I hope the charges in LA still go through. Hope that, um, I'm talking to the DA there. I, uh, got an on the record quote from, uh, Paul Thompson, the assistant district attorney today saying they are proceeding with the case. If you were asked to testify in that case, would you? Yes. I'll see this through. I just want to take out the trash. The most serious charge Harvey Weinstein was convicted of today, the one involving Mimi Hale, is about a fact pattern that is strikingly similar to your own allegation and that of several other women who say Weinstein forced oral sex on them. What was it like reading or hearing about her testimony. Did you read it? I, I could see that being painful. Yeah, that one was almost verbatim, you know, except for the structure of the uh, room. Um, it made it like they could say to Mimi, like, oh, that was just oral sex. To have someone's face where you don't want it in the most vulnerable place and that face specifically, it's a horror show. You know, and what she had to go through, I know what she went through. And what those other women went through, I know what they went through. There's pain here. There's trauma. There's consequence. But I do hope that, you know, for Mimi, for me, for, for all of us, and for all the women that have and won't come forward because they saw what happened to us, you know, I hope their bodies rest a little easier tonight. I had a nightmare last night. I woke up sweating again, you know, like I had to change my pajamas. And I get night terrors still, you know, and it's like, damn, man, come on. And I, I'm sure the trial spikes that stuff up, you know, the stress of it. Um, but I do think, I'm hoping, I'm really curious to see what will happen to the PTSD now. I don't know. I've never been on this side of it. It's a whole new world. The term justice is also getting used a lot today. What does justice mean to you? That's a good question. Justice to me, it's the stopping of him being able to do what he wants to do. What he wants to do is make money, be famous, and rape. So that's some justice, yes. But there's a point where I think justice can be perceived as just stop. Someone being stopped. I don't know if there's justice. I can't get the years of my life back. But I do have this tiny little bit of hope that I can have a life going forward. And I didn't have that yesterday. This obviously is a story that's much bigger than Hollywood. There are clearly 
Harvey Weinstein's in industry after industry, but it also does seem to have shaken the entertainment industry, or at least produced a lot of talk in the entertainment industry about change. Has that happened? Do you believe it's changed? Do I think they're all of a sudden the people out there are good people? No. But I think that they now know they're on notice and they have to have at least the perception of looking like good people. And that I think there are more people now that would be a lot less willing to go along with things. It hasn't been easy for a lot of the actresses who participated in my stories. They're still out of work in a lot of cases. So when we look so at that question... So when you're saying, has, has Hollywood gotten better? Right. No, you bunch of chicken shits. Offer these women, they were great actresses. These are great actresses. We were great, you know, and and that still has so much to offer. And if you want to, like, feel like you want to do some sort of compensation for being a bad person in the past, maybe this is the way to do it. Yeah. Producers, studio heads, yeah, casting directors. Casting directors, studio heads. Somebody has to be brave enough first, you know. Brave is not scary. That's considered brave. So when you look at the kind of movement building piece of this that sprung up, which is also characterized by a lot of earnest statements of goodwill, what's your take on that, on the Me Too movement? Is it unified, divided, substantive enough? Me Too is a communication tool, but it came right out when they needed a name for the what I was doing and other women were doing. Through what Tarana Burke did by, you know, creating that hashtag and starting that. That's a huge freedom and a gift to the world. But I think the movement, I think that's the word that's wrong. They they paint the, the picture of it, and I think it the media ran with the term movement a lot because it behooved them to make it seem like there's thousands of scary women in the street with pitchforks running after men. You know, and that's a way of scaring men. And then, which is what the media does really well, is implant fear in the people reading it. You know? keep us the same like I get asked a lot what's the future of me too and I'm like it's I, all unfolding in real time it hasn't happened before I get that question all the time too which so seems annoying. particularly insane because you're I'm looking like, at me I'm, I'm, I'm a reporter oracle? I'm like am I the oracle like how am I supposed to know like I don't know what do you think this trial this verdict means for broader efforts to hold powerful people accused of terrible crimes accountable I think it shows that it can be done. And you know who that showed it to? Me. Because I didn't know that. Because I didn't believe. Because I had no evidence. No reason to. No hope. Um, but there's a millions and millions and millions of people like me too that hold no hope. And that uh, Maybe if this gave them one little feeling of, like, David Goliath kind of thing, you know? They're like, I can matter. I can stand. I can count. I can point and say it was you, and you stole something from me, and you really shouldn't have. You didn't have to. This could have all gone very differently, you know? What would you like the long-term, lasting impact of this whole story to be? The lasting impact is that it's really just like rape is not about sex, is that this is a story of us unraveling abuse of power 
I think what's revolutionary is just saying things. I just can't stand gaslighting, not by anybody, because gaslighting leads to injustice, and it leads to pain and death. So why? And if we're all here for only a little bit of a short time, can't we all make it a little more better? A little more better? (laughs) (laughs) You've really, I think, made a difference in that inching us toward being a little more better. (laughs) Just be a little more better. That's all I want, a little more better. There's a moment I'll never forget from during this reporting process. You were under a ton of pressure and in a moment of a ton of doubt. And I went to your house to talk through staying in the story with you. And we were both writing a lot of music at the time. And I remember there was this crazy moment. I actually kind of only obliquely referenced it in the book because it seemed I love so, that you put it in there. It seemed so insane, though, to actually really get into what songs we were playing. Like, there's a musical number in this book now. <laughs> but it happened in real life. There was a musical number. There was a musical number. And you asked to hear what I was working on. We were both writing all this music. And I, I was in with a bunch of producers at the time and had just laid down a scratch vocal uh, on a song I had written called Born to Lie, which was a relationship song. It was about infidelity, but it was also, in retrospect, about all of this shit I was dealing with, with NBC killing the story and right. the culture of silence in the media. Wow, what a prescient title. And you played me a song that also, in retrospect, seems prescient and a, a vehicle for what you were going through at the time called Lonely House. Yeah. I stand for strength. I stand for mine. For women who can't, and men too scared to beat that beast, to watch him drown. To beat that beast, to watch him drown. The him I speak of needs to die. The him I speak of told you lies of original sin and dirty horse, but it's not true and never fair. Think who wins when you're quiet. And it goes from there. Do you still feel like a lonely house? Has any of this made you feel more heard, less alone? You know, when people would say, like, what character do you identify with in history? I was always like the astronaut out there on the spacewalk by himself, just floating. And then one day I was like, actually, what if I'm the stars watching the astronaut? That's more pleasant. And I think, yeah, I think I I am less lonely. And when you look back at that lyric, to beat that beast, to watch him drown, do you think that that's happened? Did you get to, quote, beat that beast, watch him drown? I think I'm watching him drown. Um, He caused untoward amounts of pain. I mean, just wreckage of so many lives and futures. and relationships and joy and time. He stole time, you know? He stole my youth, my beauty, all that time when whatever I was supposed to be thinking about, I was wanting to die. How different or similar is this to what you thought might happen, how you felt things might play out when you sent those tweets, when you were writing that song? I've always seen everything. I just never saw this part. I saw up until the news came out. And then after that, I was kind of in free fall because I was like, oh my God, I'd worked for 20 something years to get to this point. Now what do I do? 
And I'm still, you know, I'm not free falling, but I'm still like, oh, now what? I can only vaguely remember what life was like before he took over, you know? So I'm really curious to see what it's like from here on out. Thank you, Rose. Thank you, Ronan. Rose McGowan is still fighting, advancing a racketeering lawsuit against Harvey Weinstein, his attorneys, and Black Cube. And she's getting back to her art, working on screenwriting and an album. Harvey Weinstein is due to be sentenced in New York on March 11th. He's still awaiting trial on separate charges in Los Angeles. Paul Thompson, the L.A. Deputy District Attorney, told me this week, we are definitely proceeding. The Catch and Kill podcast is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and me, Ronan Farrow. It's produced by Sophie Bridges, Sharina Ong, Unjun Lee, and Janelle Pfeiffer. Editing by Joel Lovell. Pineapple's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Production support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Emily Becker, and Barry Finkel. Fact-checking by Sean Lavery. Music in the episode from Blue Dot Sessions, First Com, and Marmoset. This is all based on reporting I did for my book, Catch and Kill. Available wherever you buy your books and as an audiobook. Thanks for listening. Now that I do, it's all that I know how to do. I'm sick of lies to tell the truth, 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 tell the truth. Maybe we were born to lie Maybe we were born to lie But I swear I'll be so much more I'll give truth a try Even if we're born to lie If you'd like to talk to someone confidentially about an experience of sexual violence, you can call the RAIN hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. You can also go to online.rain.org for support via confidential chat.